Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Almost four years ago, ISIS overran Sinjar, and thousands of Yazidi women were forced into sexual slavery. Eventually, many women escaped or were liberated. Lots of these traumatized women then faced the media in situations that were harmful. Today, I'll talk with two researchers who looked into what's happened. They've tried to raise awareness and improve media practices in the region. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Last year, the United Nations Security Council approved an investigation into war crimes committed by the Islamic State group against the Yazidi people. Thousands of Yazidi women were kidnapped and sold into sexual slavery by ISIS. Many survivors have been approached by the media. You've probably seen interviews on television. We're going to talk now with two of the authors of a new paper, Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. 85% of the Yazidi survivors the authors talked with described unethical reporting practices. With me are the authors of this new paper, Johanna Foster. She is assistant professor and director of the sociology program at Monmouth University. Thanks for joining us, Johanna. Great to be here. And also with us is Shirazan Minwala, practitioner in residence in the International Human Rights Law Clinic at American University. Shirazan worked for several years on gender-based violence in Iraq's Kurdistan region, and we've had her on before. Nice to talk with you again, Shirazan. Thank you so much for having us. Shirazan, this work in this paper grew out of an experience that you witnessed while you were in Kurdistan. What was going on there? Yeah, so I was in Kurdistan working when ISIS captured Mosul in June 2014, and then in August 2014, they attacked the Yazidi people in Sinjar. As part of that attack, they abducted a number of women, an estimated 5,000 women and girls, some cases men and boys, and had enslaved and uh, subjected them to horrific violence. So a number of women started to escape very soon after they were abducted. And my first encounter with this issue was when I saw a news report on a local Kurdish station of a young woman who had escaped from ISIS and who was talking about what she had experienced and what she witnessed. And what I observed was that no effort was taken to mask her identity, her face was showing, her name was used, and I just thought, you know, right away that there were going to be potential problems for her because of you know, the very conservative context in which we were living in because of the ongoing conflict. And so that was what sort of initially flagged some concerns for me. And the Yazidis live in an honor-bound culture. It's patriarchal. Uh, There's some things people should know before they start doing this. Well, there's a lot of layers to the conflict and what was going on and the context. And so you're right. They do come from a very conservative patriarchal community. There are issues with honor. Historically, this is not the first attack against the Yazidi people. So they have suffered many attacks in the past. And historically, when women were abducted, forced to convert to Islam, 
forced to marry uh, militants, they were rejected from the community. They were not accepted back. So this was the first time that changed and that the women and girls were welcomed back into the community. So that was quite unprecedented. Johanna, tell us a little bit about the literature on this kind of issue, the journalistic practices and the interviewing techniques. And is there data that says, well, you know, journalists should do X, Y, or Z, or what should they do? Sure. And Sherazan and I were guided by the ethical reporting guidelines of the United Nations Global Protection Cluster and also the guidelines that we know are very well circulated by the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. These are guidelines that folks that are in feminist media studies are also very aware of and have been studying across contexts. So, for example, some of those guidelines include not using judgmental language in reporting, in as Sherazan was saying, understanding the context of the culture in which the reporting is going on, practices that involve making sure the needs of the survivors are put front and center. So, for example, in this case, making sure that reporters are using translators who are women, making sure reporters are not asking probing questions that bring up trauma of the rape or the assault, making sure that women are able to have a companion, for example, in the interview, that they're interviewed in places where they will not be subject to shame and humiliation. And so there's a range of guidelines that have been in circulation for some time. And the data do show that there have been enormous breaches, again, across context. Also, I'll say that in that regard, we also have a lot of data that show uh, that particularly women of color, uh, marginalized women, women in the global South are much less likely to be protected when it comes to these guidelines than are women with privilege, uh, women in the West, uh, women with privilege in the West. And I myself remember when I first saw the headlines about the escapees, I happened to be in line for coffee, and I saw the headline, one pretty sensational headline in an internationally respected publication. And frankly, my first reaction was, given everything I've learned over the years, that I couldn't read it. I felt Uh, right away that the reporting was going to repeat some of the very familiar racialized notions of uh, the perpetrators and also these very familiar notions in the literature of women from the global south being, you know, passive victims who um, were in need of rescue from brutal men of color. And and I was very, very disturbed. So when I got Sherazan's call to work on the piece, I was really eager to be involved. And one of the things I appreciated reading the piece was how many different news outlets maybe were interviewing these women. If we sit here and think, well, there's only, you know, maybe six or eight outlets here that would ever even attempt to do something like this. But there's outlets all over the world with six or eight people. There was probably a lot of people descending on these women and they really wanted to get that story. So if I could speak to that, Jerome, you're absolutely right. And after I saw that first report on the local TV station, more and more women and girls started escaping and more and more journalists wanted to report on their stories. And so this research of ours really focused on both international and Iraqi journalistic practices. When I was living and working in Kurdistan and working with these communities, I saw many journalists from many different outlets from many different countries descending on the camp. So 
Keep in mind that most of the Yazidi community was displaced in the Kurdistan region living in camps. They're not in urban areas. They're very easy to access. And the Kurdistan region has remained quite safe. So it's easy for journalists to travel to the region, gain access. They don't need visas. And so they can go to the camps and camp managers help facilitate a lot of these interviews. Additionally, the Yazidi community, the men in particular, helped facilitate a lot of these interviews. In some cases, organizations helped facilitate them because they wanted to bring attention to this issue. And they thought, and this is on the part of the Yazidi community, they thought that if people knew what was going on and the horrors that their people had suffered, that they would do something to help them. When I think about all of the journalists descending on Kurdistan, you know, it felt a lot like journalists just hunting for rape victims. And that's how I would sort of describe what I was seeing and what was so frustrating and difficult for me to observe. I'm talking with Sherazan Minwala and Johanna Foster about their article, Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more about how bad journalistic practices traumatized Yazidi survivors of sexual slavery. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Shirazan Minwala and Johanna Forster. They're the authors of a new report, Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. Eighty-five percent of the Yazidi survivors the authors talked with described unethical reporting practices. Well, what could be changed in this situation? I imagine there's a lot of deadline pressure these people are under. Uh, they feel like the journalists are getting some kind of approval from the community to move ahead on this. What would you suggest they do differently, Johanna? Well, as we've been mentioning, I think first reaching out to experts in the field in gender-based violence would be an excellent place to start. So there's a wealth of knowledge among advocates and scholars about the ways in which women and men, survivors of violence, are experiencing the trauma. And I think, you know, going to those experts is a central place to start. I think talking to members in the community about the cultural context, the political context is also key. You know, understanding in this case, the politics of honor, as uh, Sherazan was mentioning, uh, would also be vital in the ways in which the multi-layers, you know, of that experience for those that are survivors. And, and certainly getting access to the UN protection cluster guidelines or the DART guidelines would also seem to be prudent. And Sherazan, I'll let you also weigh in here because I know you also have recommendations. But, you know, as a sociologist, I do think uh, it's important to say that we do recognize that there are complex factors at play that you know would lead to 
what we are seeing is really widespread disregard for ethical reporting. And I do think it's important for us to hold media organizations accountable at all levels for incentivizing reckless conduct on the part of reporters, on the part of editors. And uh, I also think that consumers of media are going to have to hold folks accountable uh, for that kind of behavior. But Sherazan, I know you have some other things to add. Yeah. So one thing I want to be clear about, Jerome, is that we're not saying that these stories shouldn't be told. We're not saying that they shouldn't be reported on and that the women should be silenced. We're saying that if journalists comply with some sort of basic set of guidelines for how to report on sexual violence, particularly in a conflict setting, that they would take measures to avoid re-traumatizing and re-victimizing the sources of information who are the victims and the survivors of the conflict. And so what's important to note is that there were women who wanted to tell their stories and there were women who wanted to talk. There were different levels of coercion, but there was certainly not a situation where no one wanted to tell their story. And many of them wanted to tell their stories because they wanted to get help for their community. They had relatives in captivity. They weren't getting the services that they needed. Sinjar, their homeland, had been captured. They want to return home. So they had many motivations for wanting to talk. But the question is, are there some parameters that help journalists determine um, under what circumstances you interview individuals, who should be interviewed? One thing we know is that ISIS went after very young victims. A lot of the individuals who came back were children. They were minors, and they had suffered horrific Uh, sexual violence. And so there are guidelines about what it means to interview a child as opposed to an adult. And those guidelines were not taken into consideration. So individuals who had suffered severe PTSD, who were traumatized, oftentimes, you know, a victim would return from ISIS and then next morning she would be interviewed by a journalist. That is inappropriate under any circumstances. You really need to think about what you're putting that person through. And so we're just saying treat the sources with the same kind of respect and dignity and concern for safety that you would, for example, in the U.S. or in Europe, if you were dealing with a rape victim, that just because they are in a conflict setting or dealing with extreme violence, they do not have to tell their stories and they shouldn't be pressured to. And so we're just saying, like, these things need to be taken into account. One thing I will say is that, you know, I encountered many situations where journalists kept looking for the new sort of sensationalist story. They didn't want to keep talking to for example, the women who had already spoken to the media. So I had worked with, um, I was helping some of these women apply for emergency funding. I had worked with a 16-year-old who had been held captive by a very high-profile terrorist. And journalists were after her because they wanted a new angle to report on. Um, she said she didn't want to talk to the media, but they wouldn't stop calling her brother-in-law, trying to find her and trying to get her to travel two hours from some remote area in Hook to the city so they could interview her. And one other thing that I want to add is that I came across quite a few people who said that, um, you know, money was being paid um, by journalists to get access to victims because there was such a strong interest in this rape narrative. And sometimes they had a hard time finding victims who were willing to talk. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on in terms of trying to identify people who would give up their stories. I'm talking with Sherzan Manwala and Johanna Foster. They're the authors of a report, Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. How much agency did the women have to set the terms of an interview if they didn't want to be on camera or if they didn't want to talk about certain aspects of this? Did they have that room? 
agency is a really important question. And we found that the women had, in many cases, limited agency in their ability to really set the terms. So, like I said, you know, somebody coming back from ISIS captivity, they're traumatized, they've been trafficked, they don't know what their future looks like, they may have relatives still missing, so their situation is unclear. And it's uncertain. And by the way, when you have PTSD, even if objectively speaking, you are safe, which many of them were in the Kurdistan region, they don't feel safe. So they're giving interviews in that kind of a context. And then, and I've heard many fixers say to me, well, we ask them, do you want to give the interview or not? Yes or no? Do you want to show your face? Yes or no? And I think we need to think about what does it mean to give consent under those circumstances? And it's not always a question of just yes or no. So half of the women who we interviewed were survivors. They had been abducted by ISIS and suffered sexual violence. And then half of them had escaped when ISIS attacked Sinjar, and they were displaced living in the Kurdistan region. So it was interesting to see the difference in some of their responses. But the women who were the survivors, 90% said that they did not think identifying information such as their faces, their names, tattoos, clothing, other things that could identify them should be shown on TV or online or in print, because they were concerned that ISIS would retaliate against their relatives in captivity. And in fact, there were a couple of survivors who said that ISIS retaliated against them when they were in captivity after they saw news reports that made them angry. 80% of women overall had concerns about disclosing that kind of information. And both groups of women reported overwhelmingly that they felt that giving interviews to reporters was extremely difficult emotionally and psychologically. And then at the same time, many women in both groups felt that giving the interviews was worthwhile. And so I just want to reiterate Sherazan's point that, you know, certainly we're not saying that the stories shouldn't be told, gathered and reported. We ourselves gathered narratives and are reporting here now. But, uh, we really wanted to understand in what ways were women having some agency over how their stories were gathered and told. And and we found really that that agency existed along a continuum. And so not only were women facing enormous trauma from the attacks, but they're living in displacement. They were encouraged to speak about Uh, the war crimes by religious leaders and by elders. And the responsibility for women to speak on behalf of the community is, is not limited to Yazidi women. They certainly were living in very strict patriarchal communities before the attacks and before displacement. And just the grief uh, and the despair that there has been no real international outcry, despite all these sensationalized stories of the rapes. Um, No psychological services, for example. So you can imagine just the need for women to share these horrors, but also with very limited understanding of the media itself. So not just isolated geographically and socially, but, you know, think of the power dynamics between journalists and the women, uh, between men in the community who may be encouraging women to share their stories. And uh, even between camp managers, you know, who were trying to, you know, broker conversations. And one other thing I think we can't forget is that many of the women are indebted to or feel indebted to the aid organizations that are there. And so, uh, you know, sharing their narratives with folks that they may or may not know are reporters. And I think all these factors together 
uh, really helped us understand how women could be striking we what we were calling, and to borrow Denise Candioti's concept, a patriarchal burden. So how could they be putting so much at risk, both psychologically, emotionally, and physically for themselves and their families, and at the same time having some agency in doing so? I mean, that paradox was something that we thought was worth exploring and certainly really transferable to other conflict zones and women you know, experiencing such mass trauma. I'm talking with Johanna Foster and Sherazan Minwala about their article, Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. Coming up after the break, more stories from Yazidi women about how journalism practices can endanger their lives. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Shirazan Minwala and Johanna Foster. They're the authors of a new report, Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. Thousands of Yazidi women were kidnapped and sold into sexual slavery by ISIS. Many survivors have been approached by the media. You've probably seen interviews on television. 85% of the Yazidi survivors the authors talked with described unethical reporting practices. Johanna, can you give us an example of some of the things the women were saying to you, the experiences they had with the media? Sure. So, for example, a woman that we'll call Sarah said that she granted interviews, quote, because they asked us. I said no at the beginning, but they said, this is for your own benefit. One day you'll benefit. So this is the only reason I talk to them. We have no benefit, no change in our situation. We talk to journalists many times. The camp management office is far. I walk so far two times because they said I have to. Even though I didn't want to, they said it's good for you. And then another survivor said this about revealing identity. It's very bad. I was captured for a whole year, and they know me, and I have family still with ISIS, and they know it will be a bad situation. We are in homes for 10 months, and they had TVs. Women who were rescued went on TV and said things about ISIS and how badly they treated them and how the KRG rescued them. Then ISIS would beat us really badly. And then one more survivor said... It's not nice. It's sad when I see this. When they show her face and even her tattoo, it's bad because when they appear on TV, ISIS beats our girls. Uh, They are doing bad stuff for them then. When they hear it from the channel, when I was there, when they were talking about it, uh, they were talking to a Yazidian girl and they see the family, they beat her more. It would be better if they didn't show the people the face and the information about the people. They can say their story but not say all this stuff that's specific, because when they say stuff in detail, they get hurt. ISIS knows which family this is, and they beat them. 
And um, one thing, if I could just add, and this is not really a quote, but in interviewing the women, I remember one woman in particular who was in the same dress that she was captured in. And so she has not had a change of clothing since she was abducted. And this was two years after we did the interviews two years after ISIS attacked Sinjar. So that helps to sort of put in context the situation that these individuals are living in and the very sort of bad situation in terms of lack of access to just basic resources. But also people are easily identifiable from their clothing, from the scarves. And we refer to this in the paper. There's that iconic image of the Yazidi woman with a scarf over her face and just her eyes showing. And I recall one woman in particular saying, they know us from our eyes. We know them from their eyes. We can recognize them and they can recognize us. So I think it's important for not only journalists, but organizations, many of which have engaged in the same practices, to be cognizant of the fact that even if a woman says, you know, you can take my photo and let me put a scarf over half of my face, that they can still be identified and that they don't feel safe. I mean, that's the important thing, that even if they're not identified, they don't feel like that was a good thing and they worry. It contributes to their anxiety about What's going to happen now that this person came into my tent, took my photo, took my story, and I don't know what they're going to do with it. And so that was another thing that we frequently heard from the women in terms of their concerns after the interviews. Sherazan, I mentioned at the beginning that the United Nations Security Council did approve an investigation into war crimes committed by the Islamic State against the Yazidi people. What does that add up to on the ground for these people? Is there a shot at justice here? Well, that really remains to be seen. So actually, the UN Security Council, that focus is not just on the Yazidis, but it is just on ISIS. So as we know, in this conflict, there are many perpetrators. ISIS was one of the most brutal, but they're not the only one. But Iraq would not agree to open up investigations into any other perpetrators. And then again, uh, the focus is in part on the Yazidis, but also other groups who have suffered crimes under ISIS. Not one perpetrator has been prosecuted anywhere for rapes against Yazidi women. So many individuals have been detained, investigated, prosecuted, and convicted of terrorism, for example, in Iraq and the Kurdistan region. But none of them have been investigated or prosecuted for crimes committed against Yazidi women, nor has anyone been prosecuted in Europe or in the U.S. where ISIS militants have been returning. So this is a huge problem. And this is something that a number of groups will now be looking at and trying to figure out how to use what is a very flawed justice system in Iraq to actually address these crimes and try to find some sort of justice for the women. One thing that has been a concern for the Security Council is Iraq's use of the death penalty, which, you know, a lot of these individuals have been sentenced to death. Those death sentences have been carried out. This is a problem under international law and human rights law. And so that's a concern for how things sort of move forward. But we'll see. So in the context of very little justice being brought to bear for the Yazidi women and for the entire community, one of the major themes that we found in the narratives was this sense of deep betrayal, that after such disclosure in contexts that were so emotionally difficult and risky, uh, that in choosing to do so, that there has been you know, so little global outrage and justice has really come across as a, an enormous betrayal to the women. At the same time, uh, women continue to say that they felt that the story needs to be told. But so the women really grappling you know, with that outcome. 
I'm talking with Sherzan Manuala and Johanna Foster. They're the authors of a report, Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. Now, I understand there's been a pretty good reaction to your article in Kurdistan. What uh, happened with that? Well, once this article came out and we circulated it, we did get a very positive response, particularly from advocates who have been working with this community and on these issues, because people have been seeing this for a long time, and people have been concerned about this. And so I think for them, it was really important to have a scholarly article that they could sort of use to say, hey, we need to do something about this. Another positive thing that came out of it was that uh, UNHCR's protection cluster has now issued their guidelines for the Mosul response. I'm not sure why just for the Mosul response, I would think that those guidelines would apply across the board. I would say that, you know, issuing the guidelines is great, but then there needs to be more, um, not only to make sure people know how to apply them, but to really empower the community. So empower the women in the communities. I mean, many of these women are living in camps. They can really be advocates. There are still people who are escaping. There are still people who are in captivity. So really empowering women to sort of take a leadership role to work with the media and to advocate on behalf of other individuals who escape would be an important step. But, you know, again, like the response has been quite favorable, you know, and some journalists have responded favorably. I would say that others have been um, a little more defensive. And that's not surprising. And I think what's really important is for us to have a conversation about this. We understand journalists are under enormous pressure we know social media has really sort of changed the game, but that still doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a conversation about what these women are saying. And this is not us saying it anymore, right? So it really is their voices. And we try to include a lot of um, narrative from their perspective. We've been talking quite a bit about how our own work might compare to the conversations that's happening here around the Me Too movement, for example. And so I think it's useful for us to raise up some of those differences and how right now we're approaching um, that conversation here around sexual harassment and sexual assault, and to think about the ways in which the experiences of some women is being handled with some care, uh, or at least there's debates about that. Um, but other women and children, we're really not debating at all whether or not, for example, we should have non-disclosure agreements. So, on you know, advocates lining up saying we really shouldn't eliminate non-disclosure agreements because of the threat of retaliation and re-traumatization. And I've even been following some debates about it might lower the settlement payments, right, for women who have made claims. So, you know, we're at a moment now here in the U.S. where we're talking quite a bit about how we might respond to women who want to come forward or who choose to keep their stories um, private. And I have not seen us extend that kind of concern about protections of privacy, protections of emotional health, protections of risk against re-traumatization to women uh, who don't have the kinds of privileges that women here, some women here in the United States may have. And so I think that shares on to your point about starting a conversation about whose experiences get to be handled with care and whose do we think don't really need to be. Excellent point. Uh, Johanna Foster is an assistant professor and director of the sociology program at Monmouth University. Sherzan Manwala is a practitioner in residence at the International Human Rights Law Clinic at American University. Their article is Voices of Yazidi Women, Perceptions of Journalistic Practices in the Reporting on ISIS Sexual Violence. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so Thanks much for, for having, having us. us.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.